sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, but their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? And so, Father, uh, tonight, as we come before you reading this obscure text, as we walk through the scriptures and, and coming to this section in the book of Isaiah that is very rarely taught, if, if at all, uh, and to understand that the privilege that we have is to go through the scripture line upon line, precept upon precept, verse upon verse, chapter upon chapter, whatever chapters we come to, and just teaching through it. And so, Lord, I ask that you give us wisdom tonight. I ask that you help us to, to take away uh, not only what you have for us tonight, uh, but even more. That you would bless us above and beyond in your word tonight. To help us to take away your truths. And maybe a section that we've never read in our entire lives. And so Lord, I, I thank you for these, my friends and my family in this room. Those that are listening online. Those that may be listening in the future. I ask that you would use us tonight. That you would use us uh, this week. Uh, for your glory. Help us to be humble as you've been teaching us through the book of uh, Isaiah. Lord, we do lift up to you the leadership of this church. Uh, we lift up to you our, our pastors, uh, Mike Atkinson and Mike Cosper and Mike Butler and, and Mike Ostheimer. Lord, just give them wisdom in all the various ministries uh, where they, they serve. Lord, we lift up to you our elders, Larry and Ron, and ask that you would just give them a clear vision uh, for our church. I thank you so much for all the, the many various uh, times throughout the week when people are able to meet on a campus that is open and, and in love with you, with people that desire uh, to lead uh, people to you, Lord. And so, Lord, tonight I ask that you bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen and amen. We come to this section and, you know, there's lots of names. There's not lots of places. There's lots of, you know, names of people, proper nouns, all these things. And, you know, I come to chapter 20 and I've been reading this chapter all week. I've been reading the next, you know, five chapters all week long over and over and over again. And, and today on the way to, you know, uh, a church and we're driving down the the road, Emily and I, and I'm allergic to the sun. Whenever I chew peppermint gum and, and see the sun, I start sneezing. I don't know the reason why. And I sneezed five times really, really, really hard. And so I bit the tip of my tongue. I show my wife 
And, 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 you know, she said, oh, it's dripping blood, you know, and so we, we try to stop it. She makes me, you know, bite down on all these things. She's a nurse, so I just obey what she tells me to do or try to look like I'm obeying her. And then we come to this section and we have all these interlibials, all, all these denture type of, of words, tartan, where the tip of my tongue is literally hitting my teeth the whole time as I'm reading this, okay? And so please bear with me. Hopefully it doesn't sound, you know, too uh, muddled as we... Uh, walk through uh, this section. Tartan and Ashdod and Sargon and Ashdod and Amos and all these various proper nouns. And many times we come to these sections in the scriptures, whether it's genealogies or whether it's places in the Bible, and we just skip over them. That's too hard to read. I don't understand that. I'll look it up in a commentary. Maybe I'll find someone that taught it before, something like that. And the illustration is always the same. You know, if you come to a strange area, say Kern County, and someone tells you, oh, don't you like Tehachapi or Arvin or Oildale or Taft or all these places that we're very familiar with, we know where those places are. But a person visiting our beautiful county doesn't know uh, these places. And it's the same thing when we read the scriptures. Uh, a lot of these places we are not familiar with, but a person living during the time of Isaiah knows them firsthand. They, they've lived these names. They know these places. They are experiencing the political turmoil that is happening at the time that Isaiah is writing. We come to chapter 20 of Isaiah, and it's in this section, again, where very few people have read, oh yes, we've read, you know, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9, you know, all these beautiful chapters that we hear, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, and the Emmanuel, that holy one, coming to this earth to be the example of submission to a prideful people. The contrast between pride and humility accentuated over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah. We're going to see the burden that Isaiah is given multiple times, seven times between chapter 17 or, or 13, excuse me, and chapters 21. Just in chapter 21 alone, we're going to see the word burden used multiple times over and over and over again. And the reason why always comes down to one word, pride. It's the nations that have risen up and think that everything that they have accomplished, it's the people, the kings, the political leaders that have risen up and think they are better than anything else. Not acknowledging the one who lifted them up. And so the example is going to be between pride and humility. In chapter 20, we come across this amazing Chapter 6, verses long. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod, and he took it. You see, this text not only is found here in the book of Isaiah, it's also found in 
Second Chronicles, and it's also found in Second Kings. There's a reason why this event is so important in the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Assyria has its eyes on the lush land of the beautiful coast of the nation of Judah and Israel. They want to conquer Jerusalem. They want to conquer this little nation that has the important trade routes and has access to the ocean where from where Assyria is now setting their focus, setting their eyes on. In 2 Kings chapter 19, and you can read this story. It's actually three chapters, four chapters long. I'm just going to read a, a small portion of it. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, it says, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread that letter before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and the lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Verse 19. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand. And from all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. This is the time of King Hezekiah's greatest trial, greatest challenge. The nation of Assyria has just conquered Ethiopia. The nation of Assyria has just conquered Egypt. Those nations that were close to the southern border of Israel. They have come in and destroyed Edom and Syria in the north. They have conquered Damascus and they have set their eyes now on the nation of Israel and Judah. And because of this time that is happening, you remember the beginning of Isaiah, he spoke to and prophesied to four different kings. And the first three have already died. The last one, the longest of the reigning kings, is Hezekiah. And so the majority of the book of Isaiah is to King Hezekiah. And, and this godly man who, who, as he is bringing this you know, accusation against the nation of Israel, this, this threat against the city of Jerusalem, this plea for surrender from the nation of Assyria, lays that letter before God. This letter that he himself knows could mean the life or the death of every single citizen within the walls of Jerusalem. 
And so for the next 17, 18 chapters, we're going to see this story prophesied. Uh, see the, the surrounding events in greater detail than Second Kings or Second Chronicles goes into. We're going to see the political spectrum that's going on around uh, this time. We're going to see the ins and outs of the various things that are happening behind the scenes. The very first thing that we see is Tartan. He's one of the three generals that's going to be leading the Assyrian army. He's going to be coming in to bring this host, literally a multitude of people that are going to fight against uh, Jerusalem. The very first place that they come to is Ashdod when king Sargan, the king of Assyria, sent him and he fought against Ashdod and took it. Every single nation they come to in Ashdod was one of the capitals of the Philistine empire. Those Philistines, remember from, you know, the time of David that were giants, you know, Goliath was a Philistine. Uh, he, he came from a different capital, Gaza or Gath. You know, but uh, this this area here, Ashdod, was also one of the capitals of the Philistine uh, Empire. And so place after place, nation after nation are falling before the might of the Assyrian Empire. Verse 2, at the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body. And take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. And you've heard the various examples of the prophets that, you know, we've, we've learned about as we've been walking through the Old Testament. Ezekiel had to eat bread that was roasted over dung. Uh, Hosea had to marry an unfaithful wife. Uh, Amos had to, you know, as he's, you know, bringing all these sheep talk, you know, you know, bring an accusation against the women of the land, you know, literally calling them big fat cows. You know, you think, you think all these, these, uh, uh, not only prophecies, but various things that God makes the prophets do are not easy. And Isaiah, what does he have to do? He has to walk around in a loincloth with his rear end exposed. No longer walking around in the sackcloth that had been his clothes. You know, it's a sharp contrast to the three-piece suits of the people you see on TV that preach. But how does Isaiah have to dress? For three full years, he has to dress as a slave. He has to dress as a person taken into captivity. His literally, his body exposed to the elements and those around him. And as you see, this isn't just a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a nightly thing or a daily thing. This is for three full years walking around this way. In verse 3, then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot, Three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. These once great empires are now conquered by the Assyrians. And how will they be led away into bondage and slavery? 
naked, their rear ends exposed. These once proud nations are now brought low by the Assyrian Empire. Why is this? Why is God allowing Isaiah to show this to the people in Jerusalem? Because they're next. If they don't repent, they are next. And so Isaiah, taking this burden upon his own shoulders of having to show the consequences of their pride, uh, of their haughtiness, their stiff-necked, hard-hearted lives, not wanting to acknowledge God for what he has blessed Israel with, rather complaining about every single problem that is going on in their lives. Verse 5, then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. You see, the nation of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, the nation of, uh, of Israel had tried to make alliances with the surrounding nations. They had seen the building might of Assyria. And what did they do? So they decided, oh, we're going to band together with the surrounding nations. We'll make an alliance with Edom. We'll make an alliance with Ethiopia. We'll make an alliance with Egypt. All these E nations, all these surrounding nations. And what is God saying to those alliances? Every single one will fall apart. You put your expectation in Ethiopia, what's going to happen? going to fall apart. You put your glory in Egypt, what's going to happen? It's going to fall apart. The alliances will be destroyed. Verse 6, and the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, surely such as our expectation, wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? God has removed all. God has removed all the alliances. Who's the only one that they can now turn to? God. And they look up, and just like King Hezekiah does, he lays that threat, that accusation before God himself and says, you are the God of the universe. You're the only one that we can rely upon. It continues on in chapter 21. And again, we see this word burden used. The word burden is used more times in the book of Isaiah than any other prophetic book or even throughout the whole Bible as a whole. In every single one of the minor prophets, we're going to see the word burden, but it's always going to be once in the first chapter. You'll see it in the book of Malachi, in the book of Micah, in the book of Nahum, in the book of uh, Habakkuk. You'll see this word burden used, or the word oracle, depending upon the, the translation that you have. In verse 21, it says, The burden against the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible uh, land. Every single one of these references is going to be a sarcastic parody. This sarcasm, dripping with sarcasm about what it is like to be destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. You see, this wilderness literally means desert. And so it's going to be the desert of the sea. It's going to be this vast area of just sand. 
uh, that's dry and there is no water uh, there. It's talking about the Babylonian Empire, which will be the next empire after the Assyrian, whose southern edge is on the Persian Gulf and was called the land of the sea. And you remember the, you know, the sequence of events, and, and this is looking forward, but the Assyrian Empire at this time is the world power. The Assyrian Empire is the military might of this time period. And then after the Assyrians, you're going to have the Babylonians. And then after the Babylonians, you're going to have the Persians. And then after the Persians, then you're going to have the uh, Greeks. And then after the Greeks, you're going to have the Romans. Okay, so boom, 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 boom. And so all these nations are going to be taking over one another. Assyria has already taken over Babylon at this time. Uh, as we can see in this section here, verse 2. A distressing vision is declared to me. A treacherous dealer deals treacherously. And the plunderer plunders. Oh, go up, O oh, Alam. Besiege, O oh, Medea. All its sign I have made to uh, cease. This play on words over and over. This repetition of the same uh, verb and the same adjective and then turning it into a, a noun. Every single one of these words are repeated over and over and over again. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed uh, when I heard it, I was dismayed uh, when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I had longed, he turned into fear for me. Have you ever had a sleepless night because of fear? This is what is happening when the nation of Assyria is sitting at your gates. This is what it's like when the nation of Syria, Assyria has you in its sights. Fear grips the cities. It's as if you are in labor or a pangs of a woman in labor. Verse 5, prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, arise you princes, anoint the shield for thus has the lord said to me go set a watchman let him declare what he sees do you know what the responsibility of a watchman is <clears throat> it's very easy they're supposed to watch that's the purpose of a watchman right just like a guard is supposed to guard on Wednesday or Monday nights, uh, the men have been going through uh, the book of Ezekiel and the whole uh, theme of the book of Ezekiel is to be a watchman, to stand in the gap, to watch. And then the second responsibility of a watchman is to warn. When they see something coming that's a danger, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to warn, right? You know, unfortunately, a lot of the watchmen of this time, especially the, the false prophets and the political leaders and the religious leaders, they've fallen asleep. And rather than warning the people, oh, what have they done? The people have fallen asleep. They're no longer observant. They're, they're no longer aware. They're no longer watching. And instead, they're complacent and comfortable in their sin. 
and their pride. Jump ahead 2,700 years later. Is it very similar to today? Is it very similar to what is happening even in our own culture itself? Where we can be easily lulled into sleep spiritually because of what is going on. The cry from Isaiah is wake up. Wake up. Become a watchman. Go set a watchman. Make them see what is happening. Warn of what is going on. Verse 7. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen. And a chariot with donkeys. And a chariot with camels. These three types of chariots. Now, you can imagine, you know, the, the various types of chariots just by hopefully seeing uh, in your mind's eye what these different types of chariots. Which of these chariots would you think is faster? The one with donkeys? The one with camels? Or the one with horses? It, it's this, you know, animal that's bred for speed, right? That this animal that is going to be used to bring uh, about a, a swift overcoming of the infantry on the other side. Literally mowing down the infantry on uh, the other side. As we're going to see as we walk through verse 8. Then I cried, a lion of my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. And I have set my post Every night, Isaiah is saying, I see what is about to happen. And I have to warn the people of my country. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of, which is the first of those chariots to come? The horses. The horses are coming. And yes, the, the camels and the, the donkeys, and of course, these, these type of chariots were more for, you know, uh, supplies and, and bringing in large amounts of, of support for the, the various armies that, you know, were, were in the fighting uh, force of the Assyrian uh, Empire. But what does it say? Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods, he has broken to the ground. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation talks about Babylon as well. And we always talk about, you know, New Age Babylon or, or, or the Babylon in prophecy or, or how there's going to be a, a Babylon in the future in terms of the tribulation and, and various events that are being set up to take place. Whether it's a religious Babylon or, or a political Babylon or, or some sort of, you know, person like the Antichrist who's going to lead this, you know, New Age uh, religion. Do you understand that every single time, and I challenge you to look at this in the book of Revelation, every single time you see the book of Babylon, it is fallen. Every time. It's always fallen. 
What is God going to do to that political system? And we can, we can be scared of the future. We, we can, you know, uh, study prophecy and all these various things. And, and, you know, we can tremble at times, be scared for our family and our friends and, and want them to know about Jesus Christ. But every single time you see Babylon in Revelation and also in the book of Isaiah, by the way, it's fallen. It's already been destroyed. God has already accomplished his work in terms of prophecy. What else? All the carved images of her gods. He is broken to the ground. What will God do with the political power of Babylon itself? This nation that was built over the former tower called what? Babel, where we get the word Babylon from. That this conglomeration of peoples and people groups and nationalities that had come together as this great empire. What is God going to cause to happen to Babylon? It's going to fall. Verse 10, O my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. There is the warning. There's the second part of the watchman's job. Not only are they supposed to be observant and watch, but they are to warn as well. The second of the three burdens in chapter 21. The burden against Dumas. He calls to me out of seer, watchman of the night, watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning comes and also the night, if you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Which is the hardest part of being a watchman at night? Not so much midnight, not, not so much one o'clock. When does it start to become tiresome for a watchman? Right before the sun rises, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. Right, right before that sun's about ready to rise and, and the eyes are falling. This nation here, going from Babylon now to the nation of Edom. Does anyone know the history of Edom? I know, all, I'm sure all of you do. This is literally the brother of Jacob, the brother of Israel. This is Esau's descendants that that guy who had that you know red hair and was the hunter and Isaac his dad loved him because he would bring home the game he would bring home the good food and Jacob his twin brother was the you know stay at home mommy's boy you know cook of the family those kind of things and so this nation here, these two chapters, and, and by the way, we're going to see a whole book dedicated to the, book, uh, to the nation of Edom uh, later on when we uh, get through the, the minor prophets in uh, you know, five or ten years or whenever we get there. Uh, the, but basically, Edom, the descendants of Esau, their capital was in Seir, S-E-I-R, Okay. This capital city of Seir, and they lived in the rocks. They lived in red rocks. Uh, they lived in the nation or part of the nation that we call Jordan now, the, the city of, of Petra, the, this area where they would live in the caves. They were hardy. Uh, they were people that were hunters, and they loved to, you know, go after game. They, they were known for their prowess 
in uh, hunting and doing these amazing things with animals that they had caught. What is going to happen to these hunters that are supposed to be alert? They too will be conquered by the Assyrians. Verse 13, and we'll learn more about the, the nation of Edom later on. Verse 13, the burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia, you will lodge, O you traveling companies of the Dedanites. The inhabitants of the land of Tamar bring water to him who is uh, thirsty. With their bread, they met him who fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. This area of land that was flat, the, where we call the Arabian uh, Desert, or you know, in, in modern times or, or in times today, the Middle East area. Yeah, this area of land that was vast. This area of land that's going to be conquered by the Assyrian uh, Empire later on. Every single burden is going to be for a watchman. And you remember what this word burden means. It's this desire on the part of God to give this burden to a person, a prophet of God, to then give away to the, to the audience or give away to the people that he is warning. It's the challenge of every single one of us when God lays a burden upon your heart for someone else to take that burden to them, to take that burden that God has given to you, and then to give that burden away. And every time you give away a burden, you will be blessed. You will have a, a lightness of heart. God tells you, go help that person. And when you help that person, what happens to your heart? You know it. There's joy. That burden is given to the other person. But you know the opposite as well. What happens when you keep that burden? When you don't do what God has told you to do, when, when God tells you to pray for someone or God tells you to help someone and you keep that burden to yourself, what now happens to your own heart? It's weighed down. There's this conviction on your soul until you give it away. And it's the same thing with Isaiah as he's describing these things to the various nations. He is giving away the burden. Verse 16, thus, for thus the Lord has said to me within a year. And these prophetic words that Isaiah is speaking, and some of them, yes, they're for 700 years in the future when the Messiah comes. But in this case, it's very imminent. It's right around the corner. Within one year of a hired man, all the glory of Kadar will fail and the remainder of the number of archers the mighty men of the people of Kedar will be diminished for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it prophetic words are going to be true not in the future uh, within you know a century or seven centuries or within another person's lifetime they are going to be imminent they are coming and now, within a year's time. Chapter 22. 
We've talked about all the surrounding nations and who's left. Now Isaiah's hometown. The city of Jerusalem itself. God is giving Isaiah the last of the burdens. And who is it for? His own people. The nation of Judah, Jerusalem, its capital. And the very first description that we have of the nation of Israel as a whole is this verse here. The burden against the valley of vision. Again, the sarcastic play on words. When you think of a person who has a valley of vision, someone who has this excellent view of the valley, able to see everything that is coming, we would normally think that they should be aware that, that, that they should be observant to what is coming. And every single one of these verses that we're going to be reading is a sarcasm, a play on words. You should be seeing what's going to come right at you, but you are blind. You don't see the vision. You, you don't see the prophetic word coming to you what ails you now that you have all gone up to the house stops you are all are full of noise a tumultuous city a joyous city your slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle all your rulers have fled together they are captured by the archers all who are found in you are bound together and they have fled from afar, this valley of vision that describes uh, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, everyone on their rooftops, this nation that is, you know, described as this beautiful mountain that's supposed to have this commanding view of the surrounding areas. Instead, they are blind. They are unaware of what is coming. They are oblivious to the threats that are happening to their own homeland. You see over and over and over and over again within this chapter, it's this cry, this bitter, deep weeping from Isaiah the prophet, open your eyes, see what is coming. The warning is here. Be observant to what is happening. Instead of partying on the housetops, like it says in verse 2, what are they doing instead? They're about ready to run away scared. Instead of standing up and fight, their political leaders are going to sneak out through the gates at night and try to leave. You see, this is going to be the third and the last of the captivity. Throughout the book of Isaiah and also Jeremiah and then Ezekiel and then Daniel, the four major uh, prophets, we're going to see three different exiles. The very first exile is the taking away of the best of the best, the handsome, the smart, the, the ones that have, you know, education in their lives, the guys like Daniel. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
You see, these people are going to be taken away first. They're going to be taken away by Babylon, and they're going to be put into a, uh, an educational system where they're going to try and indoctrinate them into the religion and the culture of Babylon. And thank God you see godly men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who stand up for what is right. But that's just the minority. Most of the people that are taken by the Babylonians in this first uh, uh, captivity, this first exile, are going to be indoctrinated within the very caste system of the Babylonian Empire. And then, of course, the second exiles are going to be the people that were taken away during the time of Ezekiel. And it's going to be Ezekiel and these people that are in Babylon by the river Kedar. The, the blue-collar workers are next. Uh, the ones that have a trade or, or some sort of manual labor. The strong of uh, the nation. And then the last group of people we're going to learn about them when we get to the book of Jeremiah are going to be everybody else. The riffraff. The poor. The people that are just barely hanging on. And Jeremiah is going to cry out with that second book that he writes. Lamentation. Woe. Woe, woe to the people of Jerusalem, where they're literally having to eat their children because of the lack of food and the downfall of the nation of Jerusalem. Three different exiles. And of course, these are predicted in chapter 22 of Isaiah. They should be seen, but they are blind. Verse 5, for it is the day of trouble and treading down and perplexity. For the Lord, the God of hosts, in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. What is God saying? Open your eyes. Fulfill what you were called to do, to have vision to see, to observe what is happening all around you. Verse 6, Salam uh, bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gates. That valley that we call Megiddo, which will later be called Armageddon. This valley that literally is the agricultural center of Israel itself is now going to be filled with chariots. And the chariots are not going to be from the nation of Israel or Judah. They're going to be from the Assyrian Empire and later on from the nation of Babylon. And they're going to have their sights set on the city of Jerusalem. They're going to bring with them the siege works and the various armaments and the, the things of war. Verse 8, as we see, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the force, this place where King Solomon had put these massive, beautiful armories. Uh, the, these places where, you know, King Solomon, in his wisdom, had provided for the army. They're going to look there for armor, and what are they going to find? You also saw the damage to the city of David. It was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses you broke down. 
to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. You see, there was this archaeological wonder that is still there today. And you can go to Jerusalem and you can walk through this amazing tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And I have a couple of videos, by the way. Uh, I had the privilege of actually walking through this very section uh, that we see here in these uh, three verses. In fact, this is Gage and my son, Zachary. They are in this, this uh, very narrow passage. And by the way, the, the, the tunnel of Hezekiah was built from two ends. It is 1,600 feet long. It was built within two years' time. You can show the, the next uh, uh, video there. You can see how narrow it is, literally having to chisel your way through solid rock in order to bring water from one of the outside pools into the inner gates within the very city itself of uh, Jerusalem. A lot of these uh, uh, tunnels are, you know, between 10 feet to 20 feet tall. Some of them are, are a little bit lower, but you can see how narrow uh, this passage is. And we'll we can go to the next one there. Uh, this is, you know, they're just having fun here. This is uh, Gage lifting up Zachary up into this uh, uh, crevice up in the, uh, uh, tunnel of Hezekiah there. I'll just let you guys see this. And then the next one there. This is a very low part. Can you imagine making this tunnel by hand? They didn't have any drills at this time. They didn't have any machinery at this time. And as they are at times bending over, having to chisel their way through solid rock, this area right here is being described as we see in these videos here. You can see how narrow this section is in this area. And can you imagine this archeological wonder, this engineering feat, and what is God gonna do to this area? Despite the fact that they had this wonderful place for bringing in water, what is God gonna do to it? He's gonna stop it up. He's going to confound the wisdom of the people that are living at this uh, uh, time. Uh, is there one more? Yeah, this is the last one here. And can you imagine having built this tunnel and then this nation, this Assyrian empire is now at your doorstep? What would that cause for you to have happen in your own life? Yes, you have fresh water, but what is God going to do to the city itself? He's going to bring it uh, down. He's going to break the houses. The political people are going to run away. They're no longer going to be relying upon what they want. Now, of course, during the time of King Hezekiah, uh, thank God they're going to repent. We'll see that in chapters 37 and 38. The contrast between the maker and the engineer is apparent as we read through this section. You see, when God creates, when, when God designs, whether it's us as human beings or the universe as a whole or nature itself, how does God design? He designs living. He, he designs in such a way that it brings life. 
And that engineering feat that you saw there where literally two different teams are coming in 1,600 feet through solid rock within a two-year uh, time period, having to take and chisel every single piece and then remove all of that rock. What would happen in your own life if you did all that work, all that hard work, and it meant nothing? And it literally came to nothing later on when the Babylonian Empire attacked, besieged Jerusalem, and took the very last of the captives to Babylon itself, in bondage, naked with their rear ends showing. What happens to pride in the life of an accomplished person? And unfortunately, it can happen so quickly. You work hard all your life, and something bad happens. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's something that happens in your life, in your job, and it all comes crumbling down. Who's the one that you turn to? Who's the one that you look to? Oh, yes, we may have all these great accomplishments. Oh, oh, yes, we may have the, you know, the house or, or the, the bank account or the cars or the various things. But will those save us in our time of need? No. It's only God. As it says in verse 12, And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What now becomes the attitude of the people of Jerusalem? It's pessimistic. It's this attitude that says, you know, say serva, serva, or however you say it. I don't know the exact uh, phrase. But, but to understand that everything just disappears tomorrow. We might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. You see, if we have that attitude, rather than understanding that God himself gave to us his only begotten son, we will never have hope in this world. We will never have hope in this world. Verse 14, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you. Even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. You see, you cannot die even for your own sins. You cannot die even to pay the penalty for your sins, let alone anyone else. There's only one that can pay for our sin. There's only one who has died for our sins. There's this fallacy in American, you know, religiosity today. I, I can live my life and all I have to do is die and then I go to heaven. That, that's where everybody goes. You know, you go to any funeral, you know, everybody lies. 
They always describe the person as some, you know, great saint, right? And, you know, because you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead, of course, you know. But in reality, was that person good? None of us are. And so the fallacy is that when we die, not everyone goes to heaven. Not everyone has eternal life with God forever and ever and ever, the mansions in the sky. It's only when we rely upon the one who can pay for the penalty, our iniquity, as it says here, our sins. The, the only one who has the right to pay for my sins. And again, I can't pay for my sins, let alone anyone else's. It's only God who can send his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as we're reading through the book of Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us, the Holy One, here on earth to pay for our sin. It says in verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward, to Shibna, uh, who is over the house and say, what have you here and whom have you here that you have a hewn sepulcher here? As he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty men, and will surely seize you. They've built these beautiful sepulchers for themselves. They've paid in advance for the place to get buried. And what's going to happen? They're not going to be buried there. They're going to be taken to a foreign country and die some thousand miles away. It's like today when a person, you know, pays for a lot of land and then moves <laughs> or, or something happens to their family situation and the people don't want to bury them anymore. They just want to cremate them or something like that, something cheap. And the purpose of this burial is supposed to be something that has a legacy, something that people will see when they come and what's going to happen if they're taken away captive to another foreign country. It's going to be Sayang. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be vain. It's going to be gone. It will no longer be valuable. Verse 17, indeed, the Lord has thrown away you violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. And there you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position, he will pull you down. Do you see the picture of God kicking, literally kicking the people out of Jerusalem? As, as a ball is kicked. Verse 20, then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility in his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key, excuse me, to the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a pig in a secure place, and he will become glorious throne to his father's house. And of course, this is going to happen during the time of King Hezekiah. Uh, later on, we'll see that in the, in the 30 chapters, 37, 36, 37, 38. 
Verse 24, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in a secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall and the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Have you ever tried to hang your coat on a hook or a peg and that peg wasn't secure? What happens to the coat? Falls down. This is the picture that we see. They're hanging their coat. They're hanging their hopes on the wrong person. They're, they're hanging their hopes on the political aspect, the, the, the alliances and the various political maneuverings of their leadership rather than putting their hope in the Lord. The last chapter tonight, we have seven, seven minutes. It's very short. This is chapter 23. The burden against whom? Tyre. Now, now, Tyre was a trading empire, literally. It, it was a, a, an island off the coast of the northern part of Israel at this time. They also had a, 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 a beachfront property where they would, you know, protect the island. You can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 26. Whale, you ships of Tarshish. Now, where have you heard the word Tarshish before? It's in the book of Jonah. This is the place where Jonah decided, I'm going to head to Tarshish rather than go to, you know, the city of Nineveh, okay? It was a, a major trading area. It was this uh, trade route that was between uh, the nation of Tyre and the island of uh, Tarshish. For it is laid waste so that there is no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus. It is revealed to them. You learn about the, the island of Cyprus in the New Testament. This is where uh, Paul would go to on every single one of his missionary journeys as a layover or as a stop. In verse 2, it continues on, Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those you cross the sea have filled. And on great waters, the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the nations. This once great uh, trading port is going to be brought down as well. This place where you could go to and get exotic goods. This place where there's, you know, places or, or uh, products from literally all over the world would come through the ports of Tyre. And what is going to happen to this great city? It too is going to be uh, destroyed. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor uh, nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up uh, virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. This once thought impenetrable city will be brought to its knees when the Assyrian Empire comes to it. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her 
far off to dwell, who was taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth, these wealthy people who exalted in their ships and their coastlines and the goods that they traded in will be brought uh, down. Verse 10, overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more. O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon, arise, cross over to Cyprus, this Mediterranean nation, this Mediterranean trade route from Tyre to Tarshish to Cyprus and throughout the Mediterranean region as a whole will be uh, destroyed. Verse 13, Behold the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces, and they brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it will come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years, just like the nation of Jerusalem is going to be taken away in captivity. And by the way, there was another guy from the island country of Tarshish. In the New Testament, we have a guy by the name of Saul, who is from Tarshish. The same area, by the way. Look at the prediction and see if you can recognize the New Testament in these verses. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world. And on the face of the earth, her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently for fine clothing. You see their legacy, Tarshish and Tyre and Cyprus and this amazing trade route and all these ships, their pride in who they were, all the things that they had laid up that were exotic, that had come from various places around the globe, the known world, at this time, their legacy was pride. Their legacy was their things. And Jesus Christ comes, the one who is the example of humility in the scriptures. And comes and now is the one who says, release your legacy. Release your hold on all these things that are yours. And now, hold on to me. When was the last time you literally cried out to the Lord? Where, where, where you wept before God? Where you understood that I have nothing except you, God? When we sing the worship songs. When we, you know, uh, uh, do the various churchly things. We have that air of religiosity, that facade. And what does God want? 
He doesn't want the things. He, he doesn't want the various uh, legacies or the things that we build up on this world. What does he want? He wants our humility, recognizing that he is the one that establishes us. He is the one that builds us up. He is the one that pays for our debts, our spiritual debts that are greater than any debts you may have in this world. Those debts of sin. And who is the only one that can pay for all those things? It's Jesus Christ. And so, Father, tonight as we, we end this section in the book of Isaiah, it, it's so easy uh, to just gloss over these things, just just uh, read through it really quickly to make our, our quota for our uh, Bible reading for the day. But help us when we come before you, maybe tonight or maybe tomorrow, maybe later on this week, uh, to be really diligent in seeking you. And, and rather than the quotas or, or the, the devotionals that someone else wrote, uh, dedicating our time to, to looking in depth at maybe just one verse or maybe just one section, to really apply those things to our lives, to, to not be academic in our knowledge of your word, but to rather experience who you are in our lives to have that quality of who you are. And then to understand that all those things that we treasure in this world, uh, that they're just dung. And as Isaiah walked around naked with, with just that loincloth on, with, with literally himself exposed to all those around him, not, not even having a a salary or, or any nice clothing or the ability to have, you know, anything that was his own, but to understand that everything comes from you. And so, Lord, help us to be grateful tonight. Help us to be humble. Help us to acknowledge where everything comes from. Help us to realize that you are the one uh, that we look to. And when the pride comes in our lives, uh, help us to recognize, help us to see it. Help us to see it coming. Uh, help us to warn, help us to watch. And then, Lord, help us to repent and come to you. We thank you so much for accepting us, for sending your son to die for us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God